Well, hey, it's good to see everybody this morning. My name is Brian Marcioni. I'm on the Board of Advisors here at the River Church. And as always, I'm super excited to share God's Word with you this morning and just, just share some of what He put on my heart for this week. So it's good to see you all, and I'm, I'm really glad to be here. Uh, I want to ask a question uh, to start off, and it's a difficult one because it's a difficult subject. But why is it so difficult to talk about money and possessions? We think about it for a second, do a little thought experiment here, but how would you feel if at the service today, the purpose of the service was for us to come up here and disclose to the, converse, uh, the congregation our entire financial life, put up in spreadsheet form, hey, this is what I earn this is how I spend it. This is my debt. Everything. Full disclosure. How would that feel to everybody? That'd be a good feeling. We'd be excited for that. The church would be packed with people. No, we're, we're intensely private about our finances, aren't we? Intensely private. And we keep it that way because we know that people are going to think about us differently based on how we spend our money and how much money we earn. We judge others by their financial choices. We think ourselves, whether we admit it or not, better or worse than others because of our own situation. And we intrinsically know that how we relate to money, it says a lot about us, what we value. Well, any discomfort we might feel talking about money, it certainly didn't stop Jesus from talking about money when he ministered on earth. He spoke about money and possessions more than heaven and hell combined. If Pastor Sean preached about money and possessions as often as Jesus did, one in four sermons would be about money and possessions. About once a month, he'd talk about that. How would that feel? Would we have a church if he talked about money one in four times? So we're in this series right now, and we're studying the church at Antioch in Acts 11. And we're noting the various characteristics there that marked them as followers of, of, of Jesus, as Christians. Antioch was the first place where the church, they were called Christians. And in our text today, uh, we're going to catch a glimpse of one mark of that early church. And it shows how they related to money. So if you have your Bible, turn with me please to Acts 11 we're going to start in verse 27. Acts 11, verse 27. This is after Luke, who is the author of Acts, had spent some time describing the church at Antioch. And we'll pick up in verse 27. Listen carefully with me to what God's word says. It says, During this time, some prophets came down from Jerusalem to Antioch. One of them, named Agabus, stood up and through the Spirit predicted that a severe famine would spread over the entire Roman world. This happened during the reign of Claudius. The disciples, as each was able, decided to provide help for the believers living in Judea. This they did, sending their gift to the elders by Barnabas and Saul. So in the text today, we see the church in Antioch respond to a need. The prophet Agabus predicts a famine. Uh, we will actually meet Agabus again in Acts 21. He'll predict what's going to happen to Paul when he goes to Jerusalem. 
But the church proactively responds to a need in Jerusalem. And in typical fashion for Luke, if you've read Luke's Gospel or Acts, you'll notice how he ties this into a historical fact during the reign of Claudius. This is fortunate for us because when we look during Claudius' reign, we have several well-documented food shortages that were noted during the mid-40s, which was during Claudius' reign. Uh, During this time, there was a a hundred-year flood in Egypt, which was kind of the breadbasket for the empire, and it reduced the crop, and it put pressure on prices, and so food prices went way up. And Jewish Christians in Jerusalem were especially vulnerable to these food shortages. Uh, They were generally poorer, less well-off, and if you read through the New Testament, there are several mentions of taking up offerings for the poor in Jerusalem, right? And they were often expelled from their own religion, from the synagogue. So they forfeited any typical means they might have to receive charity in their own system. And notice here how there's no indication that this offering was from some general fund. Uh, This money wasn't what, you know, from what we might call a general fund of the church. It wasn't taken up from what came from tithing or anything like that. It was a special offering. It was much like we've recently set up for the Lane family, something that's outside and above regular giving to the church. And everyone gave as they were able, as they could, not as they were told to, not as they should, not as they felt guilty about, they gave as they could. This kind of sharing and generosity that we see here was very common in the early church. If you read Acts 2.45, it says they sold property and possessions to give to anyone who had need. In Acts chapter 4, 32 through 35, it says they shared everything they had. There were no needy persons among them. For from time to time, those who owned land or houses sold them, brought the money from the sales and put it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to anyone who was in need. In Acts 5, we see a negative example of this. Ananias and Sapphira, they lie about the proceeds they got from, from, from money they raised from selling a field. They kept them some for themselves. But still, the practice was common. See it again in Acts 6. There's a daily distribution of food to the elderly, to the needy in Jerusalem. So we see at the church here in Antioch, and within the early church in general, they were generous. Their attitudes towards money and possessions was one of extravagant giving. And more broadly, in Scripture, we see generosity as a mark of godliness. Psalm 37, the righteous one is generous and gives. Psalm 112, the righteous has distributed freely. He has given to the poor. In Acts 10, Cornelius, the centurion, he's noted as a godly man. Why? Because he gave generously to the needy. Generosity is even commanded in the scriptures. There's many laws in the Old Testament specifically about being generous to the poor, about caring for the disadvantaged. This is unprecedented in ancient Near Eastern law. In Ephesians 4, Paul encourages people to work. Why? So they may give to those in need. In Jesus' ministry, there's a clear emphasis on generosity and helping the needy. If you want to get hit over the head with this again and again, Read the Gospel of Luke. It's everywhere. And throughout Scripture, on the flip side, greed, keeping money and resources to ourselves, building up and accumulating wealth, is universally condemned. So 
in light of this, in light of crystal clear teaching in Scripture and the obvious marks of what it meant to be a Christian in the early church, why aren't American Christians the wealthiest Christians in the world by far? Other nations aren't even in the ballpark. We're the most prosperous people ever to walk the earth. Why aren't we generous? Right now, American Christians give about 2.5% of their income per capita. During the Great Depression, when unemployment was at 25%, one in four people didn't have a job. Giving was at 3.3% per capita, almost a percent higher. Unemployment's at around 6% right now, by the way. If all American Christians gave 10% of their income, there would be an additional, an additional $165 billion available to the church. Now, if we could ignore distribution problems and corrupt governments and all the rest, right? Let me tell you what $165 billion could do. $25 billion could relieve global hunger, starvation, and deaths from preventable Ill diseases in five years. $12 billion could eliminate illiteracy in five years. By the way, $12 billion is roughly equivalent to how much Americans spend each year on pornography. $15 billion could solve the world's water and sanitation issues, specifically at places in the world where one billion people live on less than a dollar a day. One billion could fully fund all overseas missions work. As Americans, we spend about nine billion annually on our pets. So about a ninth of that could fund overseas work. And then we'd have 110 billion left over for future expansion and, and ministry. Just think, if we just gave a tenth of our income. I once read a very honest Christian uh, who wrote this. He said, I hesitate to ask God why he doesn't do something about poverty and suffering because I'm afraid he'll ask me the exact same question. So I could fill this next half hour with staggering statistics about how we spend and how little we give. Why aren't we more generous? As Christians, why aren't we jaw-droppingly, eye-poppingly generous with our money? I mean, there are many reasons, many reasons, but one of them that I want to hone in on today has to do with the dynamics of money itself. And so we need to understand how money works. And first, we need to understand that nobody seeks money for money's sake, right? We seek it out for what it can get us. It's a means to an end. Chasing after money, greed, avarice, it's a symptom of a deeper need. This is no different than Baal worship in the Old Testament. Nobody worshipped Baal for Baal. Baal was the Mesopotamian god of fertility, and they worshipped him because they were an agrarian society, and they depended upon a good crop for their livelihood. So they worshipped Baal, which basically amounted to manipulating him, pleasing him, doing the right things, so they would get a good crop. And in our world, money is exactly the same type of idol. It's the same type of false god. 
as Baal is. It's an idol that promises to get us something. And there are three things that money promises to deliver us, three false promises that it makes. The first of these is that it offers security. I mean, we want provision for our basic needs. We want food, water, shelter, health care, whatever. And in an unsafe, chaotic world, money offers security because it's very powerful. It lets us exert our will and our power over the world rather than letting the world exert power over us. It's something that we think we can control. So we feel, we feel more secure with it. Uh, secondly, money offers status. It offers value, self-worth, being loved, respect. I mean, in general, we tend to think of financially successful people as more important than those who are not. I mean, entire magazines and TV shows spaniel after the rich and famous. But our bank accounts can become part of our identity. It's a C. I'm somebody. I'm successful. I drive a Mercedes. I'm somebody. I'm president of this company. I'm worthy. I'm valuable. Thirdly, money offers comfort. It offers us an escape from a world that is filled with pain and suffering. It can dull the hard edges of life. I think of the simple pictures you see on these adverts of somebody sipping a lemonade by poolside at a beautiful resort. And you're like, oh. Especially in January. Just like, oh, yes. Right? Or it can entertain us and amuse us. We get a nicer TV, a cable package, video game system, and just check out. We can escape from the world for a little bit. Get better appliances, better tools, pay for a lawn service, dry cleaning, whatever it is. We'll get more comfortable. So these three promises of money, security, value, and comfort, they aren't bad things. They're basic need. They're part of human nature. Uh, who, who doesn't want to feel secure? Who doesn't want to feel loved and valued? Who doesn't want comfort and relief from suffering? That is the human condition. The problem is that money can't deliver on its promises to provide us with these things. It can't do it. Instead of us gaining control, we lose it, and we become controlled by money itself. We're slaves to whatever it takes to get more money. We're not in control. We don't get any real security because we're at the mercy of our finances. If you struggle giving money away, you don't have your money. It has you. Instead of us gaining an identity and a self, value and worth, we lose it to money. I mean, in that calculation, we're not actually the ones that are valuable. It's our money that makes us valuable. Money becomes our identity. It's our self. So you lose your money, you lose yourself. You know, in the extreme examples, you hear about this every now and then, right? When, when Madoff went down and these hedge fund managers lost billions of dollars, some of them committed suicide. They lost a self. What did they have to live for? They had no more worth. All their money was gone. And instead of gaining comfort... We lose it. Our peace is robbed, worrying and chasing after money. We know we're at the mercy of this titanic system that nobody really understands. And at some level, we know that we could lose it. And ironically, we kill ourselves. We forfeit comfort to work hard, to make more and more, so we can enjoy more comfort. 
And at some level, I know you all know this. We know this. We know it. It's all over the Bible. We see it everywhere. But we're so easily deceived. Because money offers a taste of these things. We get a taste of it. Something unexpected happens, a car repair, but we're able to cover it. And so we feel secure. We get a week's vacation. Wow, this is actually really nice. I'd like to do this again. We see how people are respected and admired when they mention that they're the vice president of such and such. Or We get a taste of security, value, and comfort, but it always dries up, doesn't it? It always dries up. It's always fleeting. It never lasts. And even worse, there's never enough. There's always something out of our grasp. right? If it's satisfied, if it truly satisfied, there'd be an end point. But where's the end point with it? I mean, look at the wealthy as an extreme, but where's the end point from them? Millionaire, multimillionaire, billionaire, two vacation homes, three, a yacht, you know, wh- where does it end? There's this great poignant quote uh, from The Simpsons where Monty Burns, if you, know, if you know Monty Burns in The Simpsons, right? He's this multi-billionaire who lives in Springfield, and he's talking about his wealth one day. And he's, yeah, I'm, I'm very wealthy, you know, I have these billions of dollars. And he says, but I'd give it all up tomorrow for a little more. Right? There's always a little more. See, we're trying to plug up a hole, a need within ourselves that's the size of the Grand Canyon. And we're trying to do that by throwing coins in it. Listen to this. John Rockefeller. I have made many millions, but they have brought me no happiness. William Vanderbilt. The care of $200 million is enough to kill anyone. There is no pleasure in it. John Jacob Astor, I am the most miserable man on earth. Henry Ford, I was happier when doing a mechanic's job. Andrew Carnegie, millionaires seldom smile. I know what you're thinking. I know what you're thinking. 200000000 million, I'll take it if you're not happy. That's great. Let me manage it. It won't kill me. Wouldn't it? Wouldn't it? You know, there's a mountain of human history to the contrary that says it doesn't work. And nothing less than the word of God that says otherwise. Money's not going to meet these needs. And it's not enough just to forsake money. These problems aren't going to go away if we just forsake money, by the way. We can take money out of the equation. We'll still try to meet these needs in some other way. For security, we might become control freaks. We'll micromanage every detail of our lives, and go crazy if things aren't exactly the way we need them to be. We're five minutes late. This book is out of order. We'll manipulate people to get control. For value and worth, we can run to sexual promiscuity. Or we could run to proficiency. Proficiency at a certain skill. I'll give up my whole life just as long as I'm the best musician, the best engineer, the best football player, whatever it is. Our proficiency in a skill will drive our sense of worth. For comfort, we can run to drugs or alcohol. Or we can become aloof, just lazy, slothful. Insulate ourselves from suffering. We will always try to get these needs met, one way or another, because we're sunk without them. So you can see why we wouldn't be naturally inclined towards generosity. We have these foundational needs, and money promises to meet them. And it even gives us a taste of it. 
So how can we be generous? What gives us the power to obey the manifold injunctions in Scripture that command generosity? How was the early church able to do it? They didn't have more than us. What made the church in Acts different than the church in America? Well, let me answer that question by asking another question first. When is it easy to be generous? When have you found it easy to give? It's easy to be generous under one of two conditions. We are generous when the loss of what we're giving doesn't pose a threat to our own security, value, or comfort. When we already have something in abundance, it's easy to give away. Trivial example, you can have my slice of pizza, I'm full. Right? When I'm hungry, it's hard to give that slice of pizza away. Or if I don't think I'm going to have dinner, it's hard. But if I have it, if I'm comfortable, if I'm secure, it's easy to give it away. We're also generous when we deeply love or empathize with another. I've preached this before, but love is other-focused. Other-focused. When we love one another, we forget ourselves. We think only of others' good. That's why it's easier to give to your kids than a stranger, right? You love them. It's, it's easier. So with this in mind, let me ask the question again. How did the early church do it? What happened to them? How do we get free from the bondage of self-interest and get the power to be generous? If you've heard me preach before, you know where this is going, but guess what? I'm going to say it anyway. It's the gospel the gospel of Christ. The gospel is what happened to the church in Antioch. A few verses above where we read in Acts eleven twenty one, it says that a great number of people believed in the good news, the gospel. You want security? How about Romans 8? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but graciously gave him up for us all. How will he not also along with him graciously give us all things? How about the fact that we didn't earn our salvation, that it's not dependent upon us, but upon God? How about that our provision and care isn't in our or anybody else's control, but God's almighty, never-changing, infinite, supremely loving for us God? You want value? For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son for us. God shows his love for us in this, that while we were sinners, Christ died for us. You are so treasured so important so valued to me jesus says i'm going to forsake all the riches all the comfort of heaven itself for you you want comfort come to me you who are weary and burdened and i will give you rest praise be to god the father of our lord jesus christ the father of compassion and the god of all comfort who comforts us in our troubles so that we can comfort those in any trouble with the comfort we ourselves receive from God. And have we forgotten, by the way, about the life to come that we're promised in Christ? Reread Revelation 21 sometime when God wipes every tear from our eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain for the old order of things has passed away. 
Sir Fred Catherwood is a retired Irish politician, and he's a Christian. And he said that greed is the logical result of the belief that there is no life after death. I would add that generosity is the logical result of the belief that there is a glorious life after death. It's the logical result of belief in the gospel. And this is God's security, God's love, God's value, God's comfort. It never runs out. He's infinite. It's new every morning, right? I mean, an idol, an idol like money, it tries to plug up the hole left by the absence of God, but it can't do it. It can't do it. Only God can plug up the Grand Canyon with those needs. Nothing else can do it. You want love for one another? We love because he first loved us. How could you not love the unlovable when you, unlovable, have been so deeply loved? Generosity accompanies the gospel. Generosity accompanies the gospel. We see it in the text today. We see it in the early churches in Acts. And we can see it in ourselves as well if we lay hold of it. When our security, value, and comfort are met in God, we're free to give. We're free from the bondage of self-interest. We're free to love others. All our basic needs are met in Christ. And we can love and give and forget ourselves because we're taken care of. Open to us is to get caught up in this joyful spiral of increasing generosity. We experience God's generosity, his security, his love, his comfort, and we give and we find joy in that. There's joy in giving. And we experience a greater measure of communion with God, of holiness, of Christ-likeness. And we realize, hey, you know what? God really is all I need. I didn't need that 20 bucks after all. I'm still here. I'm still okay. I still have peace. I still have security and comfort because God is my security. God is my source of value. God is my comfort. And so you give more, and the cycle repeats. This is partly what we're made for. We're created to be generous. We're created in the image of God, the most supremely generous person in the universe. It's part of his nature. It should be part of ours. And we are recipients of staggering generosity. I love what Paul says in 2 Corinthians uh, 8. He says, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor so that through his poverty, you might become rich. You want to be like Jesus, like God? Give. Jesus had all the treasure of heaven itself, all the infinite security, love, and comfort of union with the Father in heaven, and he gave it all up for you and me. He gave up his treasure for us. Generosity accompanies the gospel. It says it explicitly, 2 Corinthians 9.13. It's where I got the idea. Others will praise God for the obedience that accompanies your confession of the gospel of Christ and for your generosity in sharing with them and with everyone else. What accompanies the confession of the gospel of Christ? Generosity. 1 John, 7, uh, 1 John 3, rather. There is no 1 John 7. If anyone has material possessions... If anyone has material possessions and sees a brother or sister in need but has no pity on them, how can the love of God be in that person? How can we claim to have received the gospel and not help others? 
It's in, they're incompatible actions. James talks about the same thing when he says faith without works is dead. In James chapter 2, he asks, what good is it if you see a poorly clothed brother or sister and have the means to help them but do nothing? How could that be true faith in the gospel? Because generosity accompanies the gospel. So how do we respond to this? Are you going to worship your money or worship with your money? Will you ask, how much of my money should I give? Or will you ask, how much of God's money should I keep? The earth is mine and everything in it, says the Lord. It's not your money anyway. You're just a steward. You know, this struck home for me several years ago. For those of you who remember who were in CFCF, when Sean called some of us up to the front, and he gave each of us a $100 bill. And he said, here's 100 bucks. Come back in a month and tell us what you did with it. And for that month, Catherine and I, my wife and I, like, what are we going to do with this money? And we felt this, we're accountable to the congregation. The church gave us 100 bucks. What are we going to do with this? Right? And yet we're given tens of thousands of dollars over the course of our lives and we're going to stand before God himself and tell him what we did with it. A lack of generosity is less a financial issue than a spiritual one. Overwhelmingly, those in lower income brackets give more as a percentage of their income than those in higher income brackets. So how do you react to this message or other messages about money and possessions? Is it defensiveness? Do you labor to justify yourself? Is it comparison? I know I give more than most people. Or wait a minute, big shot, Marcioni, how much do you give? By the way, you seem to have a pretty nice car. Could you have given some of that away? Pride alert, by the way. Pride alert, comparison, pride alert. You're only responsible for your giving. It's a smokescreen to compare. Or cynicism. You get cynical about it. All right, here we go. Another guilt trip about money so the church can pass the plate. Right? You just going to blow this off? Let's just not think about it? You know, change the TV channel? It's all smokescreens. All ways to sidestep the issue. I mean, the real way to know that this message is for you is if, the, if you don't think this message is for you. That's how you know it's for you. If you do think it's for you, then you're right. It is for you. Right? So let's not respond that way. Let's not respond with defensiveness or cynicism or guilt or comparison. Let's respond with repentance. A full disclosure here, by the way. I don't know a lick about what anybody in this congregation gives to this church, to any other charity, or to anyone. I don't know anything about that. I do know already that we are a giving church. I'm proud of the River Church to be a part of this congregation that gives. And it's exciting to see how we already, how we already do that. But it's also the case that there's always room for growth in holiness. And I know that like pride, greed is everywhere. And it's usually subtle and hidden from us. Nobody really thinks they're greedy. 
but it's slavery. There's no joy or life in greed. But there is freedom and joy in generosity because generosity accompanies the gospel. So the band can come up now, and I'd like to throw out a few thoughts for how we can respond in repentance to this. First off, this might sting. This message might sting. It stung me like crazy. You guys are lucky. I mean, you deal with this for a half hour. I had to deal with this for the whole week while I was preparing it, right? This stings. But hear my heart on this. There is grace here. There's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Our generosity isn't what gets us to God. It's God's generosity that gets us to him. And God doesn't want our money. This church doesn't want your money. God wants you. He wants you. And you can't serve God in money. He wants all of you. And if your money has you, he wants you to get rid of it so he can have you. And the second thing to think about is that holiness, generosity, it rarely happens overnight. It's a lifelong process of transformation into godliness. It consists of thousands of little steps, some big steps in there every now and then. But generally, it's lots of little steps towards generosity. So my challenge, my challenge for us today is to take one more step towards a generous life. See, generosity is like, a lot like trust. It builds on itself. You trust God more by trusting God more, right? You trust him a little bit. You find out he's trustworthy, so you trust him more. So take your first step of faith. Meditate on that. Let that sink in deep. Every time you're holding on to that dollar and you're tempted to let it go. Who's my security? Where do I get my value from? Where do I get my comfort from? What does U.S. currency say? In God we trust, right? Make that real. Maybe it's just five bucks for some of you. Maybe for some of you it's giving up your smartphone and saving 40 bucks a month, giving it to missions. Maybe it's increasing your giving to the church by just 1%. You realize what an impact and difference that would make if everybody here today just gave 1% more. So let's take that step today, one more step, and experience the freedom and joy we get from the generosity that accompanies the gospel. Now, no pun intended, but for my money, John Wesley and his life is the gold standard for generosity. I mean, he is famous for his gain all you can, save all you can, give all you can message that he preached in 1760. But he lived it. John Wesley lived it. Let me read you a snippet I found in a biography of Wesley. It says, Wesley's personal commitment to giving remained consistent throughout his life. As a student at Oxford, Wesley lived on 28 pounds. He earned 30 pounds, so he gave away two pounds. As his earnings increased, he continued to live on the same 28 pounds. When he earned 120 pounds, he gave away 92 pounds. How countercultural is that? America, it's upgrade, right? Oh, I can get a better house now. I can get a better car. I can finally get cable. I can finally, right? Wesley, uh, he wrote this to his sister. He said, money never stays with me. It would burn me if it did. I throw it out of my hands as soon as possible, lest it should find its way into my heart. He told the people that if at his death he had more than 10 pounds in his possession, they could call him a robber. 
And at his death, Wesley was born to his grave by six paupers who were paid one pound each, and that depleted his resources. Even the draperies used in the memorial service were taken down, sewn into dresses, and distributed to the poor women in London. It's a lot of steps to get there. Let's take one today. Pray with me.